All right, we're eventually going to get to uh, a verse in the book of Hebrews. So if you want to turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 4, that would be great. But we're going to start off with a, a couple other uh, verses. I want to talk to you today about a life worth living. A life worth living. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to the Corinthians and he makes these type of statements. He says, I became so that I can win. He said, to the Jew, I became like a Jew so I could win the Jew. And to the non-Jew, I became like a non-Jew so I could win the non-Jew. He said, I became weak to the weak. I became strong to the strong. He's saying there, there, was, there was a matching going on. I became so I could win. Sometimes in the society in which we're living, we're very focused on who I am. We have tests that we can take to find out who we are and what our gifts are and what our personalities are. There are numbers for those type things, and there are uh, animals that describe what we are. We're a lion or an otter or an ostrich or an eagle or a, a snail. No, there's not a snail one, is there? There's nothing. There's one test that you get a number and you get wings off of that number. It's great to know who you are. It's better to know who he is. But Paul did not say, well, this is who I am and you just have to deal with it. He said, I became like them so that I could win them. Romans 12, 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Can I pose a, a, a scenario to you? Kind of have a little bit of fun here for a moment. What if you were transported to a country that you've never been to before, and you were suddenly thrown into a sporting game that you didn't know anything about. You didn't know the rules. You didn't know the score. You did not know the objective of the game. You're suddenly thrown into a situation where everyone else is, is at it. They're going for it, and you're like, I don't even know what the object of this game is. I, don't know, I know nothing about it. What would you do? Would you just jump in and start running around and say, well, I'll figure it out as I go? Or would you sit back and say, I need a book. Somebody give me the book. I need to read the book before I participate. A lot of different people would respond in a lot of different ways. It seems that 2020 has thrown us into a game in which the rules are blurred, the score is unknown, and the outcome is obscured. But God is still on the throne. In this atmosphere, it is very difficult to minister to some people because we have a fear that if we say the wrong word or make the wrong sentence, a relationship will be severed. We live in a society in which too many people have skin that's too thin. We live in a society which is confused about what is not important, what is important, and what is vitally important. But one second... After my heart stops and your heart stops, we won't care about a virus or a politician. The only thing that will matter in that moment is, do you know Jesus Christ? That is the only thing that will matter in that moment. And so if that's the only thing that will matter in that moment, we better make sure we have the answer to that question now. Do I know Jesus? Not do I go to church not are my parents Christians, my grandparents, my uncles, my aunts, my cousins, my brother, my sister. That's somewhat irrelevant in that moment. 
because it's about you in that moment. Do you know Jesus Christ? Even in this game of life that we're thrown into, that we didn't even ask to be here, we're thrown into this situation and, and God is saying, I want to show you, I want to tell you what's really important, what's vitally important and what's not important in the society in which we live. That's a blur and very confusing. But I believe that the Christian today is the one who refuses to continue to allow the world to make the rules. I believe the Christian is the one who steps up and says, no, we're not going to play by the world's rules. We're going to play by the rules that God has given us and instructed us. Let me deviate for just a moment. I love, as we, I guess we all do, about David and Goliath. I mean, it's just a, that's just a fabulous miracle, isn't it? Young kid, you know, he's all the, all the brothers and the army and everything. They've got all their armor and they've trained and everything. And here comes some kid wins the day. But what I could never understand about that situation is, here's Israel and the Philistines. The Philistines have a really big, ugly guy. And so he's their champion. I say he's ugly. I'm sure he was. So he's the big guy. And so all of a sudden they say, we're going to make the rules. We're going to send our big guy out. You send your big guy out. And whoever wins the battle... The, you know, they win. They win the whole thing. One person dies, and okay, you get it. So my, my question is, why didn't Israel just say, huh, let's pray about that? No. And just charge ahead. But instead, they sat back and they allowed the enemy to make the rules of engagement. It is time for the church of Jesus Christ to stop allowing the world to make the rules of engagement. When we don't get our way, we don't burn buildings, we don't throw rocks through glass, and we don't loot stores. We don't make the rules of engagement. We get the rules of engagement from God and not from this world. Y'all ever played the game of dominoes? Y'all just don't even know where we're going today, do you? You're like, I'm not answering any questions. <laughs> this is a trick question. Have you ever played dominoes? Raise your hand if you've... Okay, all right. All right. The game of dominoes is so simple and it's so powerful. What is the game of dominoes? You divide up the little tiles, you figure out what you have, and then you lay down a tile. And the other person lays down a tile, and they have to what? Match. The key is you match what the other person puts down. In other words, I became a Jew to win the Jew. I became a Greek or like a Greek to win the Greek. I became like the weak to win the weak. I became like the strong. We mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. God is giving us a picture here of matching. And that's what we're called to do, is to match the other person so that we can win the other person. Win them to what? Certainly not a political party, but a Savior, Jesus Christ, who will redeem their soul forever and ever and ever, who will shed them of all of their sin and all of their guilt and give them a new heart and a new life. That is what we're called to win people to. And that must be our top priority. 
In dominoes, it is the one who empties their cachet of tiles that wins. The Word of God tells us that as we empty our life out before our Savior and before this world in giving our lives, that we have victory. We are overcomers not because we are selfish. We, have, we are overcomers because we give. We're not overcomers because we hide ourselves in our home and not associate with anyone else. We're overcomers because we get out of ourselves and we give all that we have to other people and we match them so that we can win them. The world is saying, hide yourself in social media. Jesus is saying, go and be conquerors in the name of the Lord. The world is saying, hide yourself in your house and just let whatever happens, happens. But Jesus says, no, go out. You are the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world. That's our calling. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 4, it says, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What was he doing? He was matching us because we have all been tempted. From Adam and Eve until the very end, every one of us are tempted. Jesus was matching us. In Matthew 11, verses 18 and 19, Jesus said this, he said, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Here we see that not everyone appreciates the matching. Not everyone appreciates the gesture. Not everyone appreciates the submission. But there are those who God has called. There are those who God has chosen. There are those who God is so intricately associated with. And he's saying, I'm building a body of people, an army of the Lord, a people who are captivated by my grace and mercy over their life and so filled with the Holy Spirit that they don't care about people's opinions. They're not concerned about whether someone likes me or not. They're not concerned with how many likes they get. They're concerned with one thing, and that is serving Jesus Christ. We're in Hebrews chapter 4. I told you we'd get there. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne in grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We talk about God being all-powerful. We talk about God being able to do anything and everything, and yet that is not true. There's a couple things that God cannot do. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 6, 18, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. Aren't you glad that it is impossible for God to lie? That's good news. In Mal uh, Matthew 3.16, or Malachi, I'm sorry, says, I, the Lord, do not change. 
So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Aren't you thankful that it is impossible for God to change? In 2 Timothy 2.13, it says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful. God remains faithful. For he cannot disown himself. It's impossible for God to disown himself. Other translations would say deny himself. That word means to prove false of himself or to act entirely unlike himself. We're thankful that there's some things that God cannot do. And one of those is sin. The Bible tells us that he was tempted in every manner of man, yet he did not sin. The Bible says that he can empathize or sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows about sin by knowledge and experience, but not by experience. God knows about sin because he's all-knowing, but he doesn't know about sin because he sinned. You see, Jesus empathizes and sympathizes with us. He matches us to the point that he can, but not through the experience of sin. You see, Jesus could never say, hey, listen, I feel for you, man, because I got caught in a lie one time too, and I know, how that's, I know what that's like. He can't ever say that. Jesus cannot say, hey, man, look, I, I got caught one time stealing too, and it, it's, it's, it's bad. He can't say that. So this creates a very unique situation. God sent his only son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God sent his son into the world as a man, God and man, fully God and fully man, to experience life on this earth, but not the sin of this earth. But then how can he then save us if he's never experienced what we've experienced, sin? If he would have sinned in order to relate with us fully, he would have ruined his ability to save us. If a person is drowning in the ocean, another person jumping into the ocean who also cannot swim is not going to save that person. Jesus did not sin. So how then can he save us? He did something much greater than participate in our sin. He could not sin, but he sympathizes and empathizes with us. How does he do this? He does this by taking on our sin like a garment, if you will, when he was on the cross. The Bible tells us that the one who knew no sin became sin for us. He was clothed with our sin, every sin, all sin, every sin that you've ever committed or I've ever committed or anyone watching right now has ever committed. Jesus Christ took the garment, if you will, of that sin onto himself. He became cursed, the curse that we deserved, though he knew no sin. He took on our sin upon himself so that we then could be free. He paid the price for your sin. 
He came to the point of matching you. And then he crossed over by taking your sin upon himself. He did not sin, but he took your sin and my sin and the sin of the entire world. And every sin that has ever been committed from Adam to the end of sin, Christ took upon himself that sin. And that's how much he loves you. That's how much he loves your neighbor. That's how much he loves people that you disagree with. That's how much he loves your crazy uncle and your crazy aunt. That's how much he loves the world that he took all of our sin upon himself. Everything you've ever done wrong, everything I've ever done wrong, Jesus took upon himself. And he took it to the cross and he died on the cross for our sins. So in receiving the forgiveness that Jesus paid for, in acknowledging that, God, you paid the price for my sin. Jesus was nailed to the cross, and so my sin was nailed to the cross. Therefore, through Christ, I am free. I'm not free just because I want to be free. I'm free when I submit myself to Jesus Christ. My question to you today is, have you submitted your life to Jesus Christ? Have you come along and said, I have sinned? We can talk about other people's sin all day long, but I have sinned, and I need a Savior. And I acknowledge that Jesus Christ took all of my sin onto the cross, and he paid the price eternally. He paid the price forever, and I accept what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And so, Lord, come into my life. Jesus, I accept your forgiveness, and I accept the fact that you now remove everything I've ever done wrong from my life. It was done at the cross, but we live in this day. And in this day, God gives us salvation by removing our sin. It's on the cross. Well, if that all be true, how then do we live? If we have been forgiven and our sin is gone and our guilt is long, how then do we live? We live with the experience of forgiveness. You see, forgiveness is not something that you just read about in a book and you know everything about it. It must be experienced. And we have the experience of forgiveness and we live that way. We live with the knowledge that everything I've ever done has been forgiven, washed and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And therefore, whoo, I am free from that sin. It has been rolled off of me, and I don't have to bear the weight or the guilt of it ever, ever again. I am free from my sin. The very worst thing that I've ever done, I am free from because of Jesus Christ. He, the one who knew no sin, took on my sin, and now I am free. I live in the experience of forgiveness, and that is why Christians are able to forgive other people, because we have the experience of forgiveness. And therefore, we have to say, hey, I am free from everything I've ever done wrong. Am I talking to the right people today here? Are you guys alive? You all right? We're talking about being free from sin. We're talking about being free from the very thing that causes a separation between us and God that Jesus came to wipe away. So we live with that experience of freedom. Secondly, we live in a lifestyle of worship. What is worship? That's something we do during a couple of songs on Sunday morning. Worship is a lifestyle. Worship has always been a lifestyle. It is what we do when we wake up in the morning. It is what we do when we're getting ready for work. It's what we do when we're at work. It's what we do when we're eating lunch. It's what we do all of the time. We are constantly in the presence of God, worshiping Him. Yes. 
It has everything to do with our past, our present, and our future. But it has nothing to do with what people's opinion of us is, how we live our lifestyle. Hey, listen, body of Christ, we have had the pleasure of living in a country that has been very influenced by Christianity, founded upon many of those principles. And we've had the luxury of seeing a country just simply explode over the last 250 some odd years. We've seen that. It's been phenomenal. But we better get ready for a time period in which not everyone is going to go, oh, you're a Christian? Yay. Don't you see it coming? So if your worship of God is dependent on people's opinion of you, I'm, I'm telling you, you're, you're, you need to change some things if you want to live the blessed life, a life worth living. I, I read a book several years ago. In fact, I started to read it many, many years ago, and I, it didn't match. It didn't work. So I put it on the shelf, and I read it about 10 years ago. And it's by a guy named Brother Lawrence. It's called Practicing the Presence of Christ. I encourage you to get it. It's a small book. Not a small read, but it's a small book. Practicing the Presence of Christ. This is a man who, who eventually, after fighting in a war and being disabled and having a lot of things happen in his life, went to live at a monastery, and he wanted to serve Christ, and he, and he wanted to be a monk, and he was, just, he was just all in. He just wanted to do this, and yet they found that he wasn't really good at much, and so they said, well, you go wash dishes. And he was a little upset about that. But then he began to realize, wait a minute, if I am going to serve Christ, that means that no matter where I am, no matter what I'm doing, I am serving Christ. And he began to do something he called, I was practicing the presence of Christ. And he said, if I'm going to wash a pot, I'm going to do it to the glory of God, and I'm going to do it with Jesus. If they send me into town to go get supplies, I'm going to walk with Jesus. I'm going to shop with Jesus. Some ladies said amen to that. And I'm going to bring them back with Jesus. And he just began to do this. And then he began to write, and his writings actually helped influence a great number of of people within the church and even leaders of the church because he was practicing the presence of Christ. That is worship. That is worship. When you do your best, you're worshiping God. When you mow your grass to the best of your ability, that is to the glory of God. If you're chopping down a tree, chop it down to the glory of God. If you're driving a car, drive to the glory of God. If you're working at work, you should be your absolute best. You might not be the best, but you should be your best, no matter what your job is. That's to the glory of God. The church must move away from a performance mentality. I've got to perform for people. I've got to show people. No, we've got to match people to the glory of God. We've got to get away from performance mentality to embrace the presence of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit in order to worship our Heavenly Father. Worship is exalting Jesus Christ 24-7. But worship also has a connection with repeating what God has said about us. And we're not trying to shift the focus back to us, but us is important because that's who Jesus Christ died on the cross for. Jesus didn't die for us to have this building. He died so we go to heaven. 
So worship is exalting Jesus, but it's also saying, God, who am I in Christ? Let me, let me present it to you this way. For all the parents who are here today, you have a, a little child, okay? And uh, that little child comes to you and says, oh, mommy and daddy, y'all are wonderful. Just thank you for loving me. You guys are just amazing. I'm so blessed. You're uh, so amazing. Thank you. You're just greatest mom in the world, greatest dad in the world. But I'm horrible. I'm terrible. I'm no good. I'm not good at anything. And I, I'll never amount to anything. I'll probably be bankrupt my whole life. And I'll never... What, what would you do in that situation? Would you just go, oh, I'm, I'm glad he likes me. <laughs> he sounds like a wreck, but he, he likes me. Of course you wouldn't do that. Nobody would do that. What would you do? you say, hey, whoa, whoa, time out there, buddy. Uh, thanks for all the, the accolades, but you're awesome. You're amazing. You're, you're going to be amazing. You're, okay? So why is it that we come and say, oh, God, you're so great, wonderful, and I'm lousy? We need to repeat what God's Word says about us. He says, you are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. You are children of the Most High God. To those who believe, there's nothing that is impossible. The greater works than, Jesus said, greater works that I've done, you're going to do. He said, well, those who follow me and believe in me will lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. You're going to participate in miracles. You're amazing. You're awesome. You have been washed. You have been cleansed. You have been empowered. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And you walk around with a life-giving force, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells within you. That's who you are in Christ. And so worship is, yes, God, you are amazing and exalted, and thank you that you have given me great and precious promises. Thank you that you have given me of your spirit. Thank you that you've given me forgiveness. Thank you that you've given me eternal life. That's who I am in Jesus Christ. We don't worship ourselves, but we're acknowledging what the God of the universe says about us. All worship and praise goes to God. But just like you would not accept your child being down on themselves. You think God would? Are we better than him? Y'all could have said no right then, but that's okay. It's all right. <laughs> Rhetorical question. Thirdly, how do we live? We live a lifetime of perfecting praise. A lifetime of perfecting praise. Praise. Praise is acknowledging God with a thankful heart. Praise is acknowledging God with a thankful heart. Thank God you are, and you are good, and you are great, and you are here, and you are with me, and you help me. God, I have a thankful heart. You are amazing. Horatio Stafford was a man who suffered great loss with his family, portions of his family, drowning in a ship that went down in the Atlantic. And when he was traveling the same route on, obviously, a later time period on a, on a different ship, he began to write a song 
it is well with my soul. And the second verse goes like this. It says, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Can you say that today? That your sin, not just some of it, but all of it, is nailed to the cross. Your sin. Can you say that today? If you can, then we're a part of the body of Christ. But if you cannot, don't you want to? Wouldn't that be something that you'd go, yeah, I, I, I want to have that assurance. I want to know that. And I'm going to answer that in the affirmative. I believe that is what you would want. Well, that's what can happen today. To say, Lord, I've sinned. I know that you paid the price 2,000 years ago. But now, Lord, I'm, I'm receiving the gift of salvation. I, I'm acknowledging that my sin now, I give it to you, nailed to the cross. Here we go. I'm going to live my life for you. Would you do that? Some of you are watching right now in your living room. Maybe you're at work, your lunch break, and you're saying, yeah, that makes sense. Well, right now, would you just pray a prayer and say, God, please forgive me. Please, Lord, take away all of my sin, all this guilt, all this, this anguish and this, this weight that I've been carrying. I give it over to you, Lord. Please take it, take it from me. I want to live my life for you. It's as simple as that. And then just begin to pursue Christ. We all stumble, we all trip, we all make mistakes, but we pursue Christ. We're called to not be perfect. We're called to follow Christ. We all make mistakes, but aren't you glad for his grace? Aren't you glad for his grace?